UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. I use it too, it's cool. Just gonna hit. Okay, so we're recording. I think we're recording. It always gets, it's always a delay. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have another uh, fascinating guest with me today. This this is really gonna blow your mind because when we get into like the topics of like the secret space program, um, it's like it's like hard to verify some of the things. Like, but this is what we're gonna be going over today is all evidence of like things that are already happening in space or things that have already happened in space, going back to all the way back to World War II, where there were secret space missions going on, or that was like the inception of it. But now my guest is going to tell us about. Good thing I didn't go live. 
Yeah. Are you just pre-recording? kicking me out of the stream. Do you think this is the government? Like, because they don't want us to know this information? Like, this is insanity. Like, can you can you hear me now? I can hear you. Uh, what What's your technical difficulty? What's been happening, bud? I, I keep getting kicked out of StreamYard for no reason. I never have this problem. So it makes me think that they, they don't want us to get this information out. Like, Okay, we're back now. Like that. Uh, so I'll, I'll I'll just edit this out. So again, guys, I have with me Darcy Weir. I'm just gonna get right into the interview because who knows, like, uh, what kind of internet we're gonna have. Obviously, they don't want this information getting out. Um, I'll have to edit this later. But anyway, Darcy is the amazing uh, documentary maker. He's made the films Secret Space Program, NASA's First Missions, Secret Space Program, Into the Beginning, and Secret Space Program, Rise of the TR-3B. And everything that we're going to be talking about today is definitely evidence-based. Whether they want this information to get out or not, it's all facts. So I want to give them a big warm welcome to the show and thank them for joining me again. Darcy, sorry about the technical difficulties. Thank you for joining me. How are you? No problem, uh, Robert. I'm good. How are you, man? Uh, I've never had problems with StreamYard. I'll tell you that. Like, this is, I mean, you probably, if you've seen any of my shows, like, I really never have problems. So this is very strange. But what I was going to say, what we were talking about before we started the show was, and we can get into the beginning of the Secret Space Program in a little bit, but I just kind of wanted to jump right into, you said that our military has already completed some missions out in space. Now, if we go by what the 20 and backers say, they'll say that, but you're saying that there's actually evidence that we've, I mean, I'm not saying the 20 backers don't have evidence. I'm just saying like, you have proof that there, there were missions already carried out in space, correct? Well, we do have record that the manned orbital laboratory was run by the military, the pilots that, well, the men that were on those missions were pilots, Marines, uh, Navy men. It was just a whole gambit of different characters. Um, and they were gone for weeks, months, you know, trying to spend as much time up in space, spying on Russia, most likely, um, seeing what they were doing in space, carrying out their own exercises in space. Uh, and they essentially were flying around the whole time that the Apollo space missions were happening. Uh, and we only really figured out that the manned orbital laboratory was in operation when Nixon canceled the program in the 1970s. Okay, so um, this was happening they were using essentially a modified Gemini uh, Agena spacecraft to carry out the missions. And, um, you know, that's, we don't, all the information from these missions are, it's completely classified. So we'll never know exactly what they did, but we know that the missions were being conducted at the same time as the Apollo public space missions. So if you're going to talk about military being involved in space and having their own astronauts, um, 
it's real. There's there you can go look it up online. It's a published fact that the military had their own space missions, their own astronauts, their own spacesuits, yada yada yada. Well, and this was going on the same time the the the, the secret not the secret space program the, the real space program the Apollo missions were going on. You're saying so yeah. it was like this regular space program was like a front for whatever this was. I mean. It, it it's not necessarily that the Apollo space missions were a front. They definitely were there to um, encourage the public to show that the United States had technical prowess, uh, that were you know they were scientifically at the edge of uh, innovation. But you know, uh, people will argue that. The spam in the can guys were were the real illusion to the public when meanwhile there might have been exotic technologies that the United States military industrial complex was testing at the same time that, you know, made the liquid rocket systems obsolete. Um, you know, if you're if you're talking about uh, UFO type technology. I don't know 100% that we had that operating at the same time, but there's rumors, obviously, that we may have. Um, How much? I don't know if you talked. You didn't talk. I didn't see you talk about this in your film, but I I, I just got to get your opinion on it because it's it's important. I think to the secret space program. How much credence do you give to what Gary McKinnon found when he hacked into the U.S. Navy and found that we have? uh, You know, I'm sure you know about that, right? yeah, I believe Gary McKinnon's story. Uh, he hacked into a J- jet propulsion lounge server. He was hacking into as many space-related um, military or I think he hacked into NORAD too. But he was using um, a script. He was using an application that would um, fill in the the basic password requirements for old windows server um accounts which you know if you i i come from an it background if you um install the original windows server like windows 2000 um it comes with a default administrator account that was just administrator as the username and the password was blank until you set one up, until you logged in the first time and you manually manually reset it. So apparently the Jet Propulsion Lounge folks were lazy. They weren't, uh, the, admin, the IT guys were not setting up passwords for these administrator accounts by default. They were just leaving them. And Gary got in that way. And uh, when he downloaded, well, when he was looking at imagery that was located on their server drives, um, he states that he saw a manifest of uh, off-world pilots mixed with human uh, personnel for space missions. And he said he saw uh, a UFO-looking craft in a in a, in a picture that he was loading up slowly on the screen and you know dial up modem days uh 
line by line, uh, and and this was hovering in space over uh, you know over Earth. So in or in Earth orbit, uh, the picture, and it was in some kind of uh, proprietary photo format that he had never seen before. So obviously, um, the folks that were taking these photos from space were also creating their own encrypted photo technology at the same time, just in case somebody did hack in and try and steal the photos and open them on their own computers, they probably would have to have some kind of, I guess, proprietary software to view them. I don't know how he viewed, maybe he viewed it with their native software, but, um, that's his story. I reached out to Gary, uh, a long time ago. I did do like a, a sort of a first attempt at a secret space documentary called Beyond the Spectrum back in the day. And I had a whole bunch of ideas and a thesis, thesis there that was, you know, something's going on in space that NASA and, and the powers that be are not really telling the world about. Uh, and that includes UFO activity and anomalies and stuff like maybe megalithic structures on the moon, that type of thing. But um, Gary allowed me to use, you know, his story in that documentary some time ago. Um, and I think it's a credible story. I, I think, well, one thing that sort of strikes it, strikes me to to think it's more credible is the, the way the United States reacted. Like they wanted to extradite him to the U S and possibly throw him in Guantanamo Bay. I don't know, but um, you don't mess around, mess around with military secrets. Uh, you don't hack into military servers and JPL is, you know, people don't realize that the American military NASA is their scientific arm uh, and NASA has been following, you know, classification protocols when it comes to space related da data missions um, and how they've been exploring space since the, the, you know, very early days since NASA's onset, they've been following classification protocols to keep things from the public. Uh, that the military practices because the framework was there for them to adopt that. And it's, it's even part of early NASA manuals when it comes to um, how they're supposed to carry out their missions. And we published that in NASA's first missions. Uh, I think you saw the whole bit on um, the NASA safeguarding materials that were inside of a NASA manual. Um, and it says that NASA widely adopted executive order 10501, which, um, you know, is an old executive order from the Eisenhower days that the military uses. I was going to ask uses, about that. Yeah. yeah that, that the military uses and, and other institutions um, that allow these organizations to classify material and how to follow um, the steps in classifying information from the public to keep things away from the public. 
and uh, you know it's all under the auspices of safety, under the auspices of safe safeguarding the public from something that could cause a disturbance. And you know, in this case, it could be uh, maybe the destabilization of public psyche, uh, the economy, all that kind of stuff. Do you think that's why they don't want to uh, release the truth about the UFO reality and, and even like our back engineered programs, but even so more the alien presence, if there is an alien presence, which I strongly think there it might be, but I'd love to get your opinion on that. You know, I, I don't, I think that we will, I, I don't know if in our day and age, we'll actually get disclosure the way that people think that we're going to get it. I think that disclosure that's rolling out right now seems to be, I don't know, almost like some kind of psyop. But um, I think that if there is any truth to an extraterrestrial reality that we have been visited in the past and possibly still being monitored or visited as we speak um that information if it was classified in the past i think it's still very sensitive it indemnifies um the military and it indemnifies the authorities in certain ways um because if they were covering this up they were also ruining people's lives that were coming forward in the past that were speaking out about this, about their experience, you know, experiencers. Um, so I don't just don't know how they would roll out disclosure without implicating that they have done things wrong. Um, I, I was going to say that I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm sorry. I was going to say I'm a big fan of your films and I know you did a, a film on experiencers. You had Kathleen Martin on there and, Stanton Friedman, and even though he wasn't an experiencer, he worked with experiencers, and I know he believed in the UFO phenomenon and experiencers, but I, I, I think that was Beyond the Spectrum. Is that what it was, your, your film on experiencers? No, that was uh, Being Taken. Being Taken, okay, yeah, Being Taken. But still, so you're really familiar with the experiencer story, and like, I think that's where a lot of our disclosure is coming from, the contactees. Yeah, I mean... Even there's so many different levels of what somebody can be as an experiencer. You know, there's people that are pilots that see anomalous objects when they're on their flights, commercial and military. Um, there are people that have had very anomalous experiences on the ground. They've either seen craft up close and been affected physically by that interaction which I think Gary Nolan has had a lot of exposure to apparently the data regarding these physical interactions that have caused health problems for people. Um, and then you, you have right down to these people that allege that they've been abducted. They were taken aboard craft that was not from here and they interacted with beings that were not from here, you know? So, um, being taken, we had Stan Friedman. He took uh, the Betty and Barney Hill case very seriously. So he kind of unpacks that. We had Travis Walton. I think that's an interesting case. Um, there's 
you know, skeptics on one side saying he's a liar. Uh, but then you have multiple witnesses that saw him get struck by this beam of light or something from a UFO uh, when they were coming back from Snowflake, Arizona, or going back to Snowflake, Arizona from the mountains. Uh, and he disappeared for four days. So, you know, where was he? And then he had this tale of where he was and people say he was probably on drugs. I mean, you're going to have skeptics, but then you're going to have this whole possible reality that he's telling the truth. And uh, Kathleen Marden, she she's believes that she's part of this bloodline of abductees. Um, and that's a common theme that David Jacobs has talked about, Bud Hopkins, um, you know, this is a story that I was very interested in, and um, I remain interested in the experiencer stories um, and the UFO stories. Yeah, one one thing I noticed when I was watching, I watched all three of your films last night. I but I was I paid attention really to the NASA's first missions and the rise of the TR three B. But one thing I did notice was in your in the in the in the beginning secret space ufos in the beginning i saw you had an interview in there with philip class now i'll tell you the difference between myself and him like i know my name's typical skeptic but i'm really open-minded and I'm i was gonna ask you about that man like what is yeah, what's the whole what's, what's the skeptic thing here you interview well, like just, all ufo and alien people but you go into it as a skeptic I'm, I'm skeptical. I always, I always stay a little bit skeptical. I think it's healthy to be skeptical, but I'm really open-minded and I kind of want to believe, you know what I mean? Yeah. But like one thing, and then there was like people like Philip class, who was kind of like a thorn in our community side. Like he just outright lied about things. You know well, what I mean? look, like he, it's, it's, it's good to be skeptic, skeptical. And we need skepticism in this, you know, research field or in this whole phenomenon, because there's people that can stand up and say that they've had experiences that are false. And uh, there's, you know, all kinds of misinformation and disinformation out there. So it's good to be skeptical. Um, and Philip Class is an example of a skeptic that seemed to be paid for by the government. Uh, Kathleen Marden and, and, and Stanton Freeman actually wrote a book about um, how he was linked to, um, I think General Twining was, was pushing that the Air Force use him as a PR contact to address, to address any of the UFO activity that was happening because he liked Philip Class's stance. And uh, Kathleen Marden and Stan Friedman actually traced some funding that came from the military to pay for him. Um, and, you know, there's tr the Travis Walton case, for example. One of Travis Walton's best buddies that was at the encounter where Travis got allegedly struck by this light that emanated from a UFO before he was abducted when they drove off and thought he was dead. This guy said that uh, Philip Class approached him and offered him $10,000 to go on the record and say that the whole story was fake. 
you know, so that that's, that's coercion. That's not your typical skeptic. That is literally being a debunker and trying to change the discussion into the pessimistic rather than, uh, you know, uh, a healthy skepticism. I, I agree. I agree. I think he was a, a real bad, uh, in, like for our community. I wanted to ask you this one thing you cover, and before we get into the TR3B stuff, because I wanted to get into that, was um, you cover like Jimmy Carter's attempted disclosure and even Clinton. Like, I think a couple presidents tried looking into this and they were absolutely denied access. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, you know, we know that. Uh, Ronald Reagan probably was read into the space related stuff um, because he was pretty much in charge during the whole uh, Star Wars program. But Jimmy Carter actually saw his own UFO. It flew over his car and, and it was very distinct. You know, this is a guy that's on planes and trains and automobiles all the time. He had, he was a president, so he had to constantly be flying around and stuff. So he had some knowledge of what he was seeing. And after he actually filled out his report and sent it to the International UFO Bureau at the time, the uh, MUFON basically. And, um, there, he followed up. I think he tried to reach out to the military, but was blocked. Um, we know that Obama looked into it privately, and he didn't really get anywhere. Clinton did. Uh, he didn't really get anywhere. Um, but, you know, you could talk about, for example, the Wilson memo. Yes. And the fact, and the fact that you know, uh, he thought that he had the rank, high enough rank, to be read into any kind of projects like this, you know, with Greer and and Edgar Mitchell bringing this information to him, Doctor Edgar Mitchell, former Apollo 14 astronaut, they called the brain when he was working in uh, Houston at Capcom. And uh, Wilson didn't get anywhere. Some people say that that's a fake memo. And, and he's even come out recently and said, I had nothing to do with this investigation. But uh, I, I, it's my opinion that somebody told him, you know, go public and discount this story because it's picking up traction. Uh, and that's what happens. Well, I had uh, I had Michael Michael Hall on my show, the paranormal lawyer. He said that he he had to back. I can't remember who it was. But he had to um, when, uh, Grant Cameron. He backed Grant Cameron when Grant was going to come forward with that story because he needed legal representation. And then I heard that you know Grant Cameron and Richard Dolan were pretty serious about it. So with them being so serious about it, it almost feels like there has to be some kind of credence to that because I don't think those kind of researchers would cling to that kind of that that for evidence. I think they would have to see that there's some kind of merit in it. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. The, the, um, the documents, the Wilson memo actually came from Grant Cameron. 
So, and, and where Grant Cameron got that from, nobody like really knows. And then Grant Cameron gave that to Richard Dolan. Um, so is it a leak? I'd like to think so, but, um, I'd like to get more information on that. Um, it, it sounds seems, like you stay a little bit skeptical too, but like open-minded though. It seems like you're really open-minded like me, but you're a little bit skeptical. You stay a little bit skeptical, right? Yeah. Not pick yeah. I'd love to talk to Grant Cameron about it. Actually. I've, I've only heard this through my friends, you know, other <clears throat> researchers in the community who've told me the backstory on this and uh, you know, you piece it together and you go, well, I need more. Um, so one thing, one thing I thought that was amazing was the fact that you had Richard Dolan in, in both your films, maybe, maybe in all three, I, I know that he's definitely in NASA's first secret missions and he's also in uh, rise of the TR three B. Can you talk about what he added to the film and your thoughts on him? Cause I think he's just a brilliant researcher. Yeah, I think he does a good job at ruling out the misinformation and disinformation. I think he's a good filter for that type of stuff. And, and he's a brilliant historian. You know, he's one of these guys that's dug through documents and looked at the history of UFO sightings and military involvement, uh, everything that has been on the record. And he's put together such amazing books in the past um and he continues to sort of contribute to what's going on um actually funny enough if you go and watch uh that showtime tv show uh i think it's just called ufo yeah UFO, um which you know is a little series that was produced by jj abrams the really strange thing is that they <clears throat> they have this guy that comes in in the last maybe two or three episodes and he's very adamantly says when he starts appearing on camera, you know, there has been no historians that have come to this field or come to this phenomenon and accurately done a historical record of how things have gone. And I was blown away when I saw this guy go on camera and say there's no historians because Richard Dolan is a trained historian. He went to university, he got his master's, he wrote his thesis and is a studied and professional historian. He focused on history for his, you know, when he was going into a profession of, of doing historical journalism. And he also went into global politics, right? He does global politics too, right? Or something like that. I don't think so. But what I'm getting at is that that show, you know, completely ignored the fact that there was a credible historian that was researching this phenomenon for many, many years. And, that's Richard Dolan. So I like to go to Richard Dolan because he just knows the history of things. He understands um, where to go to pull certain sources. And that's why I've worked with him. 
Yeah, it really adds a lot of like credence to the film. I I, I think so, and and all, all all the other evidence you got too. But I I really highly respect every every time he comes out with a video. I always just I'm like open ears for it because I know it's good information coming out. You know, he's like a he's like a very trustworthy source. I feel like I feel like he, he comes off like you can just. I feel like I'm really psychic, and I can read his energy, and it, you can just feel like there's a there's a uh, an aura of trustworthiness coming out of him. That's what that's what I get from him, and I don't even know him. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, what, I'll get back to the regular questions I had for you. Um, getting like the going into like the when your first film, the, well, not the first film, the NASA secret space UFOs first missions. When you get into the Project Mercury UFO sightings. Um, can you talk about like how the firing of Scott Carpenter uh, happened and like how that related to UFOs? It was an astronaut, Scott Carpenter. Yeah. So Alan Shepard was the very first Mercury capsule test pilot, right? Um, Mercury was in between X-15 and Gemini. <clears throat> and Alan Shepard when he went into space the very first time revolving around the planet in, in earth orbit, he looked out his capsule window and he saw these shining emanating lights that were following his capsule in an elliptical motion going around his capsule, hundreds of them. And, you know, this was being reported on radio it was a live uh, event, you know, people were hearing this man say, oh my God, these bright lights, they look like fireflies. They're flying around the capsule. There's so many of them. Uh, looks like, they're, you know, he thought they were alive. And so that happened and it kind of threw the public into a panic. It also uh, had the public curious, are we alone in the universe, right? Uh, is there other life out there? Space critters, right? And, um, you know, I think other astronauts were very curious about this too. They didn't know what to find out there in space because no one had actually been fully in Earth orbit for that long before these Mercury missions, right? Um, and Scott Carpenter was one of the later test pilots on the Mercury mission. And what happened on his mission was that he got distracted by something when he was up there. Now, it's my opinion that at this point, he'd already been told, look, you're going to see things up there that might see anomalous. Don't get too distracted. Um, at this point, we'd already figured out that the fireflies in which Alan Shepard saw were not aliens. They weren't UFOs. Uh, they were just like water molecules, basically, that had frozen on the side of the capsule. And they had broken off. And um, I explain it to this, this phenomenon to people um, if you ever want to see a pretty funny show, it's called Avenue five on HBO and it's like a big space cruise ship. Um, and all this crazy stuff's happening in space and the missions going wrong. One of the things they do in that is they jettison their poo and pee out into space, which 
astronauts have done on previous missions. And um, when you have a craft, when you have an object in space that has a certain mass and weight, what happens, just like Earth, um, that object attracts smaller objects. It has a gravitational force and things end up revolving around it. And in this Avenue 5 show, uh, the poo and pee that they jettison ends up creating this like revolving aura around the ship. And so for the Mercury, there's, yeah, it's horrible. But for the Mercury mission, um, what Alan was witnessing was water molecules coming off of his craft and then they were being attracted to the craft and just revolving around the craft because it had its own gravitational pull. It had its own mass and weight that was bigger than these little particles so they were attracted to it. So Scott Carpenter would have known about that phenomenon before he went on this mission of his own. So what he was seeing when he went on his mission, in my opinion, and, and some other researchers believe this too, that might have been a UFO, uh, authentic UFO experience. He was seeing something that was not these molecules or firefly looking things. He was distracted. He was distracted so much that he wasn't following his mission checklist. All astronauts follow a checklist. They follow a routine. They, they have to stay on time because everything is scripted. Everything has to stay on this checklist so that they can get their objectives done and then they can get back to the planet in time. Um, so he was missing all of this because he was being distracted by what I think is a normal, like a actual UFO encounter he was seeing. And um, he almost missed, he missed his re-entry point that was, he was meant to make at a certain time. Um, and he landed in the ocean in a completely different area that he was supposed to be picked up in. Uh, NASA panicked, he panicked a little bit, but what happened as a result of all of this, when he got back to the planet, they fired him. They never allowed him to go on another mission because he was being distracted. He was talking about something he was seeing. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the, you can look up online, you can go on YouTube, you can listen to the audio uh, record of him re-entering the atmosphere on his mission. He states even on that, my my fuel is low, but I'm not empty. And NASA said they fired him because he ran his fuel empty because he wasn't following proper protocols. He wasn't a um, what what the uh, mission manager said that he was was not. A good pilot he was not you know cut out for the job or something and that was offensive to scott carpenter uh you can look at interviews where he's been asked about that response from nasa and he says i think it was a failure of the machine not the man so he defended himself um but he did talk about that he was distracted by something uh that was bright and and revolving around the craft. Um, and he kind of explained it away as maybe the firefly phenomenon.
but I don't think so. I think he saw something, but he just shut up about it and he let himself be fired and he moved on with his life. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to touch on real quick, and I, I think what I love about your films is that you provide evidence and I love evidence because I think it obviously it brings a reality to the phenomena that we love. Right. And that's why I love this phenomena, because it seems sometimes it seems so intangible, but it's the hunt for it makes me love it, you know. But then when I see a film like yours, where you're providing like actual evidence, like you have pictures of craft, you have pictures of UFOs in space, uh, stories from pilots, um, you know, the whole gamut of evidence. Like, how do you, like, I mean, I don't want you to give up your sources, but like, was it hard to come up with this evidence or does it kind of just fall into place when you're in the midst of doing a documentary? Well, look, I work with other researchers in the community. Um, I work with people, you know, I, I worked with all kinds of different academics that have been researching this phenomenon. We've talked about Richard Dolan, Stanton Friedman, you know, all these different experiencers. Um, one of the researchers that I worked with on this documentary was uh, Tracy Starnes. He went through and found images that were given to a university and uh, those didn't come from NASA. Um, NASA didn't release them themselves, but in those images from the university, they appeared to show strange anomalous objects. In other words, maybe UFOs. Um, but this wasn't in NASA's, you know, Apollo Lunar Surface Journal, uh, not in their archives. Why? Because NASA doesn't want the public to see that type of stuff. They either scrub the record, manipulate the photos or don't put them up at all. And, you know, Tracy Starnes is one of these independent citizen researchers that, you know, journalists that has been going and looking at stuff involving UFOs and anomalous activity in space um, with regards to NASA. And, uh, you know, another guy that I've been working really closely with, he actually sent me his hard drive with all of his original data that he downloaded off of the NASA archives early on um, is Kerry Martinuk. Uh, he goes by, he on YouTube went by Luna Cognita. Um, I've got him in the films represented in uh, secret space UFOs in the beginning. Uh, his work is in, Rise of the TR-3B, as well as this recent one, NASA's first missions. And um, he's been, you know, some uh, somebody that's, he's a friend and he's a, a very credible researcher that was hyper-focused on NASA history and, you know, just put together such a wealth of knowledge. And I've been unpacking the images. I've been unpacking the transcripts and, you know, finding, you know, talking to him on the phone. What is this? What is that? Where did you get this? And he's just been a great resource for this type of information. Um, that's, you know, what I try to do. I try to find credible information. I try to work with different people in the field.
That's awesome. Now, I kind of wanted to move to the TR3B. I have a bunch of questions, but I don't want to give away too much of the film. Like, um, I guess I'll just start off with this. Like, what do we know about the TR3A and B, or otherwise known as alien reproduction vehicles? And what do you think we can verify after doing your film? Well, yeah, the film is there to prove that we've had sophisticated craft you know, going back to even the 1940s, jet engine craft. And uh, at one point, researchers have speculated that we may have not relied on fossil fuel um, jet propulsion. We cracked the anti-gravitic barrier and we started testing out that type of technology. Um, with the TR-3A, they actually published a prototype uh, demo of that craft. It was supposed to be called the Black Manta. That was in a issue of Popular Mechanics. And um, that supposedly ran on fossil fuels, but it had the shape and it had the capabilities that we've heard about from something like the TR-3B, but the TR-3B was supposed to be much larger than the TR-3A. Um, this supposedly had uh, maybe hydrogen propulsion on the corners for turn for maneuverability, but its uh, lift came from a magnetic field disruptor, a sort of anti-gravitic uh, engine that was in the center of the craft that allowed it to rise to space. And this craft was supposedly so large, rumor has it, uh, that it was able to carry large amounts of personnel, you know, apartments worth, as well as possibly heavy machinery like tanks or something into space if you needed to do that. Um, so, you know, Edgar Rothschild Fouché, who did apparently work at Area 51, this is what... Jeremy Reese had found, uh, um, who goes by Alien Scientist on uh, YouTube. He, you know, investigated this individual over a certain amount of years, and uh, another friend of mine and his, um, who got really close to Edgar before he passed away, tipped me off on this guy when I was making the film. Uh, I don't think he wants me to say his name, but that's how I got some more details about this craft. Some people think TR stands for maybe tactical reconnaissance, or it could just be Northrop Grumman's next um, terminology in, in, you know, apparently... TR-3A was a Northrop Grumman prototype, and uh, people allege maybe the TR-3B was made by them or Lockheed Martin. But I think the interesting thing about this fable is that people are concerned that there's a secret space vehicle that operates in airspace and outer space that flies around our planet even today that has incredible stealth capabilities because it uses metamaterials that can uh, change 
the exterior of the craft to be cloaked. Uh, and it also has this anti-gravitic propulsion, which, you know, people say, well, if the military or some kind of research organization is able to use this technology, why is this not being rolled out to the rest of society? We need to get off of fossil fuels. Um, but you look, you've got so many people that are recording really strange triangular shaped objects flying in the dead of night, hovering silently, going over neighborhoods, and also flying, you know, way, way high uh, around the space. People allege that maybe these are flying in space, uh, navigating past the satellites or something like that. And you see it in infrared footage and, and all kinds of footage, sometimes in daytime footage in the infrared spectrum. But you, many people say you can't even see it with the naked eye. And that kind of falls in line with what a metamaterial technology would be able to do. It would be able to elude the light spectrum of the human eye that we can perceive. But then you have technology like certain types of cameras that can record and view into different light spectrums that our eyes can't see. And that's where we see some of these craft. So um, the ARV, the Alien Reproduction Vehicle, is possibly something that came before the TR-3B even, the Flux Liner. And that would have been uh, more in the shape of a classic dome plus flying disc, flying saucer type vehicle. But it was crude. Um, you know, this is... Mark McCandlish's big story that he broke and uh, he's no longer with us, but he did many illustrations based on an encounter one of his friend had at an air air airfield at a uh, show that was private to certain military personnel only. And, um, you know, that, that rumor lives on today and apparently that vehicle was very old. That was something that was possibly being test flown back in the sixties and seventies, maybe. And wow. then that makes one think was, was the ARV what sometimes the spam in the pan can guys, the, um, the public space mission pilots, the astronauts were seeing when they were sometimes in, in Earth orbit or on the way to the moon, did they sometimes see these ARVs, alien reproduction vehicles that were being test flown by the military? And, and so, do you, why do you think they had a, a main a main space program? Do you think it was kind of like to get the eye off from Russia off of what we were really testing, or like? Or maybe we just had a regular space program just because it was more stable at the time. And and maybe our, our UFO program wasn't as stable, maybe. I think um, the public space program served as a PR exercise for the United States, you know, uh, to invigorate Americans 
and and make them feel powerful around the world, knowing that we landed the first men on the moon and that we had technical capabilities that were ahead of the Russians. You know, it, it gave vigor and uh, strength to the public psyche of people. Um, but then the secret space program, yes, would have been a place that they could spy on the enemy and test more advanced capabilities that they just do not want the public to know about. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. One thing that you get into in the documentary that I thought was so cool was you talk about NASA's seal and the vector symbol and how other military symbols include this vector symbol. It's like the the symbol of the TR-3B, but it's like in different designs. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so um, it seems like the vector or the chevron, this kind of V-shaped uh, arrowhead insignia that's on many of the Apollo insignias, uh, many space military squadrons, uh, even the Space Force, which we have today, has the chevron. It has like almost like, you know, the uh, Star Trek Enterprise communicator logo. Um, and, you know, people allege that that's either part of a Freemason insignia that's been adopted into all of these uh, space missions, sort of um, emblematic insignias, but also it might be kind of hinting that we have spacecraft that are not in the public that are, you know, BBDs, big black deltas, like these triangle shaped craft that operate around the planet. Um, and certain squadrons know about them, certain space uh, missions probably fly them, but it's not open to the public and it's kind of like a hidden in plain sight theory. Yeah, and, but, but there was one thing that I picked out too, and this is the last question I have for you as far as this, and we'll get into Bitcoin. I have a couple questions about Bitcoin, but in 2004, the United States Navy applied for a patent wanting to make a craft similar to the TR-3B. Why do you think they would come out to the public with a patent like that? If, or, or do you think that maybe they think no, nobody would look into it? Or I, I don't... I mean, it could be just sort of the trickle-down effect. Um it could be as simple as putting it out there so that eventually if it does become public that we have look the um the the a12 blackbird right the cia version of the sr-71 no one knew that that was being built and test flown um during the 60s right through the 70s and it was decommissioned in the late 80s uh, so it was deeply classified for over 20 years and we now know about that craft and that craft sits on you know the um, deck of the uss intrepid in in the harbor of manhattan if you ever go to the uh sea and space air sea and space museum in in new york you can go see that 
that ship was a very clandestine, uh, mil, you know, Air Force black budget aircraft. And when you publish patents like this TR-3B type patent, I think it came out in 2008, um, but researchers only really found it in, in recent years. Um, it shows this triangle with uh, what looks like almost like an anti-gravitic propulsion system on each corner of the triangle. And um, it talks about some of, it kind of alludes to what its design would be. And maybe that is kind of like a, a trickle down attempt to say, look, we're applying for this patent. Uh, so if you see this in the skies and you know, we're ever at war with a great adversary like China or Russia in space and in airspace, outer space and airspace, they could then say, well, you know, we showed you guys, we had applied for this patent in the past. It's something new. We're using it to protect the country. That would make me feel a lot safer. I know that. Like if we had something like that, I mean, because I mean, I was going to ask you that. I didn't think about asking this, but I, I wanted to get your opinion. Like I know Dr. Sala has written books on China's secret space program. Do you think if you had to, I mean, if you had to guess, and this is just completely speculating, but would you say that we are more, are ahead, more ahead of like Russia and China as far as like our secret space program? I think so. I think we had the best, um, we had the best technology. We had the best scientists, you know, the project paperclip guys that came over after world war two, the, the old Nazi scientists. Yeah. I think we, sense. I think we had Russia didn't really have that. Um, Russia and China definitely could reverse engineer things. And we know that they've done that for submarine technology and, um, you know, certain aircraft, they've been trying to get the designs for our stealth aircraft, but they've copied it. And you can look up Russia's own drone uh, based technology looks much like a, a triangle um, that flies around airspace. And these are stealth bombers that don't even require a pilot in, in the cockpit. So They've obviously made some technical strides. Yeah, that's insane. And progress. It's, it's, it's insane to think that this whole thing is going on, like, and like these like secret space wars, like you know. But my my last my couple questions I have for you is on Bitcoin, like, and thank you for answering all those questions. That was amazing, by the way. But like, what people don't might not know is well is that you you made a film on Bitcoin too, and I wanted to give that its credit because. I use Bitcoin. Um, I've used it to buy supplements. I've used it to people have sent me Bitcoin. Um, I've sent I've people I've sent Bitcoin. I've received Bitcoin. I've bought Ethereum. I've used Ethereum before. So I'm kind of familiar with it. But for um, for people that don't know about it, like, can you talk about why you chose to make this film on Bitcoin? And what do you think its impact is going to be on like our currency system? Yeah, so um I like to follow stories that I'm interested in, and I think Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are the way of the future in terms of 
how our financial systems will change um, and the way that we interact with each other transactionally on the internet will go the way of um, blockchain technology. There's so much innovation happening there. Um, it's faster, it's more secure, it's smarter technology more often than not. Um, and a lot of companies, Microsoft, Goldman Sachs, uh, Apple, all of these big companies are starting to build, Google are building out blockchain technology. And what do you mean by blockchain technology, like cryptocurrency or what do you, what do you, what do you, for people that don't know? So blockchain technology, basically like Bitcoin was the very first blockchain success. It was the first to market. It has the first to market advantages over all these other cryptocurrencies and crypto technologies in terms of blockchain that are coming out now. And what it did is it took our traditional banking system, accounting, uh, transfer of wealth and um, history tracking and um, settlement. And it put it all into a technology rolled into a block that when you transact with it, you don't need to use a bank, you just have to set up a digital wallet and you can interact kind of like Napster when that first came out. It was a P2P music service. We're talking about P2P money system now. And all of the information is recorded online in a public open ledger. So you can see what money's gone out of a wallet, what money's come in. Um, so it's People used to attack Bitcoin as being this completely anonymous Silk Road, you know, uh, legal, illegal ledger system that was just allowing all criminal activity to go on. But actually, because it's a open ledger technology, it's more traceable. <laughs> uh, so it was a myth that was put out there by the banking system because they're so scared this technology could supplant them in the future. And it's already happening. So well, do you think that the banks would try to then implement their own form of cryptocurrency? Like to, they to are. try to catch it, you know what I mean? They are. Oh, they are. Yeah. I mean, I figured they would do that. the United States is trying to figure out the federal reserve is trying to figure out how to, implement their own stable coin that's based off of the US dollar. And some people say USDC is that stable coin that will be used by the United States. Um, and USDC was created by a company called Circle, which behind the scenes, uh, Warren Buffett has been a quiet investor in. So you know that that's going to be favorable to him. Um, USDC is just like your dollars that you would have. Like, and so if you cash out for people that don't know, once you cash out your crypto, it gets converted to USDC automatically, at least on Coinbase. It does. That's who I have. I have Coinbase. And my, when I sell Bitcoin, it automatically goes, the money goes into my USDC wallet. And that's almost like having cash, right? Yeah. So it's, it's basically one for one. One USDC is one US dollar worth. Um, Bitcoin 
is a scarce asset. That's why people like it. Um, and it has this whole accounting system. It's widely known around the world. You can buy it on many different types of exchanges operating in hundreds of different company countries. Um, and it only has a like cap of 21 million that could ever be created. Many of those have been lost. Really, it's around 18 million that you can ever mint at this point and, and get your hands on because some, some of that's been locked away in wallets. So it's a really scarce asset. There's only 18 million Bitcoin. There's billions of human beings. Um, so people equate it to being a digital gold. It's uh, deflationary because every four years, um, the minting of Bitcoin becomes harder and the quantity that's minted every day gets halved. So meaning only half as much gets minted every day once the calculations get harder for the mining computers to print it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a, a network algorithmic token that's generated from people doing proof of work, which is computer, uh, mathematical problems being solved around the world and, um, money USD and the USDC that fiat-based cryptocurrency. Fiat currency is something that we can just print into infinity. So it's not scarce. It doesn't really have that much value. The perceived value of it is the strength of your country's military, uh, the amount of oil you hold or gold. Um, and that's why you see countries like Russia and China you know, no longer trying to transact in U.S. dollars. They're hoarding gold. They're trying to have more control of oil. Uh, and they're partnering up with Saudi Arabia and, and other um, BRICS nations to possibly launch their own new fiat, international fiat currency system. But um, China is already, you know, at the forefront of making their own stable blockchain coin. And people speculate that maybe that will be something worth more uh, rather than holding U.S. dollars in the future. Wow, that's that's so interesting. This is so interesting. So all, all, all in all, like, what would you say? What kind of technologies are on the horizon in crypto? Like big stuff? Well, everybody talks about the metaverse, and that is essentially a you know, network and a ecosystem in which you interact with every day on your phone or via a VR headset. And Mark Zuckerberg's whole plan with Meta, uh, why he spent so much money in research and development and pushing the new Oculus technology and such, is that he wants people to plug into Facebook or now Meta and he wants people to socialize there. He wants people to work there. He wants people to live there. And blockchain technology, the way that that transacts, 
the way that it's its own accounting system, that it's open, it's transparent, it's faster, it's more efficient, it doesn't have the middlemen of a traditional bank. You know, banks are extortionists. They hold your money, and if they make a bunch of bad moves and they start to crash, they have to go ask the government for a bailout so that they don't lose everything. And if they go down, your money goes down with it. This has happened in multiple different countries. You look at Venezuela, um, many different African countries, uh, you know, now Argentina, their dollars crashing, their banking system is failing. Um, and crypto is kind of this reset to the banking system. But in the future, um, blockchain and crypto technology will be also a reset to how we do things socially um, and how the government monitors us, really. That's a, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? <laughs> because they have so much control. I mean, they're going to monitor us no matter what, right? So, I mean, I think we just got to get over that because it seems like they just do that no matter what, like there's certain laws put into place that allow them to do that. But um, mm -hmm. what I was going to say was uh, this is all so interesting. So do you, uh, let me ask you this. Do you see crypto being, uh, Oh, by the way, I just thought it was amazing that like that uh, Zuckerberg, he's so rich that he was able to buy out a UFC event. Did you see that? Like, I don't know if you fall, I fall my big fan of the UFC. Okay. Yeah. I and, love it. So yeah, you have it too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you, you I, I don't watch. I don't watch them live. I watch them the next day because I don't want to, like, fork out. I don't have that kind of money, but I follow yeah, the big fighters. You know, uh, huge fan of Israel Adesanya and uh, some of the classic fighters. Um, so yeah. But did you see that Zuckerberg, I don't know if you followed this much, during one of the fight nights, Zuckerberg bought out a whole UFC. Like he rented it out and it was only like him and his friends were allowed to be in there. And people were thinking well, it was that probably that was his, a, probably employees. It was probably like an employee event, like a corporate event. Yeah. But what I was thinking was maybe he was trying to do that too because he was going to find some way to incorporate that into his metaverse. Like maybe that was like, you know, like, a plan, like he's going to figure out some way to incorporate the UFC into a, um, a digital form of that for the metaverse, you know? So maybe he was trying to get an idea of how it goes down, you know, or maybe he's just a big fan. I know he trains. Maybe know, he's so. a big fan. I didn't know he trained. That's cool. Um, I know that yeah, he does jujitsu. He does oh, jujitsu. Cool. Yeah. I know that Chili's is a, uh, um, a sports based cryptocurrency that was invented and they've done some UFC collaborations and so has V chain V chain sponsored, uh, and became a partner of the UFC in, um, I think they're one of their Singapore events or one of their Australian UFC fights. So, and yeah, and the UFC is already minting NFTs, non fungible tokens, which is, you know, kind of art based, uh, crypto, that can either be linked to a ticket, your ticket to an event can be a unique NFT, um, or it can be just a, you know, JPEG, a 3D model that's baked into a picture that's been given to you from UFC.
Do you, do you think those will hold up the NFT? Because a lot of people seem to be doing those. Yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of the whole NFT market. I know the technology is important, like non-fungible tokens. It's like, it's basically, you know, if you look at DRM technology, digital rights management, uh, it's like an evolution of that. So if you're an artist and you make an amazing song and you go and partner with Apple iTunes and you upload that song there, somebody buys your song for 99 cents, Apple takes their 30 cents, um, you get your 70 cents or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and their DRM, DRM technology is you have to have iTunes to run those purchases of music. And in order to run iTunes, you have to have an iPhone. So they keep you in their ecosystem. Um, NFTs, if you're an artist and you have your logo up here and you want to turn this into an NFT, when you create that into an NFT, um, you own the rights. It's baked into the code when it was created, the date it was created, who the digital rights owner is of that art, uh, Robert Khalil, and you know how it was created and what the resolution is, that type of information. And then you can keep that NFT in your digital wallet beside your Bitcoin or your Ethereum. And if somebody says, hey, I want to buy that unique NFT, you can say, okay, I want 0.03 of a Bitcoin and I'll you know, send it to your wallet. They send you the... Bitcoin, you send the NFT to their wallet. The information then is coded into that NFT, the new owner, but it keeps the historical record of who the original creator was, Robert Khalil, how it was created, what data was created, but it shows the new date of the new owner, their name, yada, yada, yada. So the accounting system that we know for blockchain is now going into art. And that's why NFTs are so powerful because artists can actually keep track of rights management and they don't have to go through Apple or one of these big corporations to be their pimp in, you know, to be their middleman that takes 30%. Um, and you just have to have a digital wallet and have really good art and a good platform to sell it on one of these NFT platforms. And, People see it, they like it, they buy it. Maybe it's limited. Maybe there's only one of these. Maybe there's five of those. But you make it unique, you make a limited amount, and you sell it, and people can, you know, keep it in their digital wallet. Yeah, I wanted to tell you real quick before we finish up, and I don't want to take too much of your time. This is just so but, interesting but, to me. But NFTs will... will it will go into movie making, you know, into the genre I, I work into eventually one day. Uh, NFTs will go into music management, I'm sure, too. So when artists make a, a music video, they might might make that video into an NFT and only a certain amount of people see a version of that video. You know, Or even a podcast, right? You could even do a podcast where you have an NFT for an episode of a podcast. If you podcasts can. get that big. And the and the the creators, one of the creators from YouTube, the original creators of YouTube created uh, Theta, 
which is a uh, blockchain video platform, kind of like YouTube, but it operates on ThetaCoin. And you transact in that, and that has a certain value. You can buy that on Coinbase, for example. And they're building out that platform to be a transactional uh, crypto-based video platform, kind of like Amazon Prime or something. That's pretty cool. I, I wanted to tell you real quick before we go, one of the one of my video providers is like, you know, I'm on YouTube, obviously, but then I'm on like every audio platform, but then I'm on Rockfin too. And I, what they do is really amazing. Like when we, we create, I create videos for all these platforms, right? But when I'm on Rockfin, I do the same thing. I just create videos for them and, and how they pay us is they pay us in a, a form of Bitcoin, but it's not Bitcoin. It's like, it, I can't remember what kind of coin it is. It's like, it's like RAC coin. And then you have to kind of convert that to Ethereum to cash out. But like, I just, I'm keeping mine in there because like, it's, I think I have a feeling that the coin might take off or it could someday, you know, it's, it's always nice to have investments. And I just think that's so cool that they're kind of ahead of the game and they're doing that for their creators, you know? Yeah. Um, trying to think who else has been doing stuff like that i mean like if you look at dogecoin i i don't own any but um people have been um saying that twitter is going to create a banking system that operates on dogecoin because elon bought it and elon musk is a huge um advocate for blockchain technology he owns bitcoin he owns ethereum and he owns lots of dogecoin uh and that is a meme coin but you know part of the success of a cryptocurrency is the network in which it operates on and uh the utility the scarce amount of it you know that will affect the value um but if you look at Dogecoin, if that gets enabled on Twitter like that, you enable a massive new network for it to be traded and transacted with. Um, and people could create digital crypto wallets with their Twitter overnight and start picking up other things, maybe Bitcoin or something. You know, this is just pie in the sky theory. This is what people speculate Elon might do. He's kind of hinted towards that type of future. But um, banks are scared of this. I mean, if you look at what uh, happened with Libra, which was a Facebook-based crypto uh, project, they were going to create a digital wallet that would be uh, linked to your Facebook account. And you could transact with Libra coin to buy stuff online and sell your services or product through Facebook uh, marketplace and, and the network, right? Well, Congress got involved in that and they started calling Mark Zuckerberg to hearings to say, what's your plan with this Libra? What's your plan with this, with Facebook and this new cryptocurrency? They were really scared of it, and they shut down his attempt to, to enable that. Why? Why did they shut that down? Well, because the banks put them up to that. The banks don't want to be destabilized. They want you to hold your money in a bank account, and they can charge you at the end of the year 
thousands or hundreds of dollars just for holding it there. Meanwhile, they're trading your money. They're investing your money. They're using it to buy insurance. Who knows what, you know, things they can do with it. You saw sign on that dotted line when you set up an account with the bank and it in the, the, you know, stipulations of that contract, they're allowed to do sophisticated things with your money. But when you come to take the money out, it better be there. That's kind of what it says, right? And it's uh, fractional reserve banking is what they actually operate on. They're only ever supposed to have at least 30% of the actual amount of their client's money present in the bank. Okay, so that means the other 70% they can go and do whatever they want with. And the banks don't want you taking that money out because that is taking away their power to do everything they, they want. The 401 case you, is a good example of that, right? Yeah, if you think about what uh, Facebook would have done, they would have overnight become a banking system and they would have had billions of customers like the amount of people that are on Facebook worldwide is in is above a billion, right? So when you turn around to that a billion customers and you say, hey, now you can transact with a digital wallet and you can send crypto and uh, you can set up your own shop and you can set up your own service with your Facebook marketplace, you don't need to have a bank account. You can just have us. You're a bit, you're essentially creating a brand new banking system that supplants the traditional banking system. And that's why they shut down Libra. That's why they gave Mark Zuckerberg such a hard time. And then he realized it was futile and pivoted towards Meta. But eventually, I think he will roll it out. Yeah, that's this is all so interesting. Well, um, if you want to tell everybody, thank you for, for again for doing this. And um, if you want to tell everybody, you know, name your what the films that uh, especially the new ones, um, your website and uh, how to contact you if they have experience or, or information or, and thank you again. Yeah, you're welcome, Robert. Nice to meet you. Um, my website I think is scrolling along the uh, the ticker. Here, uh, it's ocultjourneys.com. People can find me on Instagram, Darcy Weir Films, um, and uh, my YouTube is Occult Journeys. Um, yeah, and my films are on Amazon, iTunes, Tubi TV. Uh, 12 of my films are now available at tubitv.com, and you can watch them for free. Uh, so I welcome people to go there, check it out. I appreciate your support as an independent researcher. Um, this is my job. I, I, I love it, man. I love your work and, and thank you again. This was, this has been such a fascinating conversation. It, I love talking crypto too. So this was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been, it's been right. nice. Until next time.